Good evening and welcome to Colorado Inside Out. I'm your guest host, Krista Kafer, Sunday columnist for the Denver Post. Tonight we're joined by David Kopel, law professor and research director of the Independence Institute, Eric Sonderman, columnist for Colorado Politics and the Denver and Colorado Springs Gazettes. Danny Newsom, Director of Strategic Partnerships for Cobalt, and Kalina Kulig, winner of both sides of the story and a student at the University of Richmond. The Colorado Legislature convenes next Tuesday. They're likely to take up new gun control measures, such as a ban on modern sporting rifles, such as the AR-15, a waiting period for purchases, and an increase to the minimum age for firearm purchases. If passed, will these measures pass constitutional muster? Dave. Well, as far as the Colorado Supreme Court goes, the right to arms in our Constitution hardly exists. And that's the same nullificatory approach the Colorado Supreme Court has long used for the portions in our original 1876 Constitution that prohibit corporate welfare and for the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. But in federal courts, it may be a different matter. Under the U.S. Supreme Court decision last summer in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, the text and the original meaning of the Second Amendment are what matter. And that, that includes is uh, elucidated uh, by the mainstream legal development in the, the decades after that. And based on that approach, uh, all these laws uh, look pretty shaky. Just for one example, the guns they want to ban fire at the same rate as a common semi-automatic pistol, like from Colt or Springfield or Ruger. And in fact, semi-automatics, uh, rifles or pistols, uh, have been around since the 1880s. However, the Colorado, in the Colorado legislature, there's often a saying, uh, the Constitution doesn't count on second reading. Eric, ever since the Club Q shooting, folks have been talking about broadening red flag laws. Uh, are there other things that the legislature could do that could impact uh, the issue of gun violence? Well, I think there are, and I think you uh, listed some of them in your question to David. I'm not going to argue constitutional law with David, particularly when it comes to the Second Amendment and uh, uh, firearms issues. He's actually argued cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. I haven't. I guess my view is let's test the limits. Let's test where the court is going to come down. Uh, on a lot of legislative issues, I'm going to encourage the Colorado legislature this coming session, even though the Democrats have all the power and huge majorities, to occasionally pump the, the brake pedal. Uh, here, I'm fine if they ride the gas pedal a little bit and if they push some of these measures through. If they go too far, the court will slap them down. But I'm not opposed to some bold steps and a bold action. There is no panacea. You're not going to eliminate gun violence through any single or multiple pieces of legislation. But you can improve it at the margins. And I just am of the mind, even though I accept the Second Amendment as a part of the Constitution, that in many ways that is being applied and interpreted these days is at such disparity with what the founders 250 years ago, or the better part of that, could have ever imagined or envisioned or intended. So let's test the limits. Danny, how do we protect the rights of law-abiding citizens while also deterring those who would seek to hurt others? Boy, Krista, that's an odd question to ask me, since I am with Eric. Uh, pedal to the metal, because what is happening in Colorado, what is happening across the country, but what is happening in Colorado with the Club Q shooting, the King Super shooting, and too many other massacres to, to um, the Aurora Theater, um, and of course Columbine, 
Um, absolutely. This is a matter of morality. It's a matter of common sense. And so if, if the uh, legislature can uh, make changes to the red flag law or make, because there are, there are jurisdictions in Colorado where you have um, um, authorities who refuse to enforce the red flag law. If they can make uh, changes to the red flag law, I don't even oppose a ban on, um, on, uh, assault, on assault guns. I don't, I'm not for raising the age. I don't think anybody needs to um, um, have access to a weapon of war, period. And so I'm all for this. Well, I agree with Eric also. This is, this is not going to be a panacea. I think uh, there are some people who will, um, if they're determined to kill, and they're, if they're uh, determined to kill with a firearm, they'll do it. But this may prevent something. And if it can prevent something, I'm all for it. Um, Lita, what do you think the legislature should do? Sure. Um, there's a couple of proposals on the table right now that I think actually have a lot of promising potential. Uh, the most so being implying a waiting period before um, a weapon like this could be purchased. And I think that's a really good idea. Actually, studies have shown us that when a similar policy has passed in another state, requiring somebody to wait a few days before they can purchase a weapon, it's actually reduced suicide and homicide by 7 to 11 percent. And I think that's a really great benefit here. Another proposal that's on the table that I think is really worth considering is regulating ghost guns. These are weapons that can be purchased in pieces uh, online or in person and then assembled by an individual. And I see them as a really, really dangerous prospect. And so implementing more regulation there I think is also really important. Now, whether or not a ban on assault weapons is possible or whether it will pass a constitutional test is really difficult to say. And so I would urge the legislature to focus more on the proposals like the waiting period and the cracking down on ghost guns. Governor Polis said his administration is helping migrants get where they're going by busing them to places like New York City and Chicago. More than 3,500 migrants have arrived in Denver since December 9th, straining city resources. Conservatives are wondering why the governor of Colorado isn't getting the same bad press as the Texas and Florida governors got for busing migrants to other states. Eric, what's the discrepancy here? Well, the discrepancy is that Jared Polis is not Ron DeSantis or Greg Abbott. Um, I think our viewers uh, and others can exercise some discretion here. There is a difference between what Governor Polis and, um, and, and other authorities at the state and local level are doing versus what DeSantis and Abbott did, which was very much for show, for political theater, to make a political statement. And it was done without any semblance that I could see of compassion for the human beings we're dealing with here. If, and I'm going to take it at face value until proven otherwise, if these are indeed people who used Denver as a way station, as a stop, when they intend to get somewhere else, I have no problem with Colorado helping them along to that someplace else. It benefits them, but it also benefits the state because our resources are so strained in this regard in terms of the carrying capacity and number of migrants we can help in this massive influx. Of course, there's the bigger issue of how do we get control of our border? How do we reach some kind of meaningful compromise on long-term immigration policy? But we don't have time today to get into all of that. 
for now, there's a distinction between what Abbott and DeSantis have done and what Polis has done, and we ought to recognize that distinction. Even so, New York, uh, New York Mayor uh, Adams, he says he's rather frustrated with what Colorado is doing. Are local, uh, local, local governments bearing the brunt of this migration crisis? Well, right now, uh, certainly in the metro area, Denver is, and there are some other counties that are saying they cannot handle anymore. But you know what? You're not going to have a state government, and you're not going to have a county government um, come up with the solution to this. This actually is a federal problem, a federal issue, and it's going to involve cooperation from the federal government. And as it's constituted now, that's not going to happen. Um, and it's also a problem for uh, state governments, and that's where it rests. I have to, again, agree with Eric. This is really something, um, Eric, because I, I've never agreed with you so much before. But um, there's, I know, and it's young yet. But anyway, um, Governor Polis and Mayor Hancock also are not doing something else that Abbott and um, DeSantis are doing. They're not demonizing these individuals. You know, not only did they toy with their lives, they demonized them as to make them others. And they're not doing that here in Colorado. They are showing compassion. They are trying to provide shelter, food, what have you. But in the end, that is not going to solve the problem. So Denver has put forth about uh, $5 million uh, to try to serve and help these migrants. That's a substantial cost. So no wonder uh, you see city, uh, city officials uh, struggling. Um, Kalina, is there a solution to this? Um, I think the solution is to zoom out for a second and look at the broader problem that we're dealing with here, which is that Republicans and Democrats have not come together on a sensible border policy. The measures that we have in place right now are shaky at best and often based on a COVID state of emergency, which could expire, and the justification for that going forward is just limited, really. And so one thing I'd like to see from this new Congress is some steps forward in the right direction. I think the real problem here is that the burden of supporting these asylum seekers is not distributed um, how it could be. It falls really heavily on some local governments and not on others. And so I think a better, more sensible policy could help distribute that burden. And I'd also like to second um, the distinction that Eric made um, between what Polis is doing and what we're seeing Abbott and DeSantis doing. I think the real difference here is coercion. If we are helping migrants who, say, maybe have family in New York or Chicago and want to be there, I don't see an issue with that. But if we're in any way coercing them, I think that's absolutely unacceptable. Dave, your thoughts? Well, it's not fair for border towns like El Paso to, to bear all the burden. And with Denver freaking out about several thousand migrants in the last month or two, that, 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 that's minuscule compared to what the border towns uh, have been through. As Governor Polis accurately said, a lot of the people uh, who have on their own, this is not being, they're not being bussed by uh, Abbott or, you know, the taxpayers of Texas, they're getting to call to Denver on, on their own uh, through voluntary self-organization or with the help of Texas nonprofits. A lot of these people, 70 percent about, uh, may know somebody who could take them in, you know, let them sleep in their basement, or they may know somebody who may know somebody who could help them get on their feet, um, but not necessarily in Denver. So that, that's why about 70 percent of the people coming into Denver have been accepting transportation to somewhere else, which has been California or New York or Chicago. Now, it's, it's not 
you know, a lift service. If the person, if you know somebody in Minneapolis, uh, the state of Colorado is going to send you to or give you a free bus ride to Chicago, and then after that, say, okay, city of Chicago, that's your responsibility uh, if you want to run a bus up to, to Minneapolis. So you can understand why New York and Chicago are, are complaining, because they're also uh, bearing a hugely uh, disproportionate uh, burden. Democrats hold nearly two-thirds of the seats in the Colorado General Assembly. As they take up the gavel, what will their priorities be? What should their priorities be? Danny. It is amazing to me and pleasing to me. Democrats now have a veto-proof uh, majority in the um, state house and a 23-12 majority in the Senate. And there are many priorities. I think um, the affordability um, and availability of housing, uh, chief amongst them. But during this last election cycle, there were two issues that dominated in Colorado. And that was abortion, abortion rights, and uh, democracy, or saving democracy. And I think clearly that in the, in the wake of the Supreme Court's um, destruction of Roe versus Wade, Colorado voters have given our state legislators a mandate to protect and expand uh, reproductive health care in general, but uh, abortion care in, in particular. And I am positive that uh, Democrats are going to introduce legislation in, uh, during this session to uh, protect and expand abortion access and also to uh, protect the privacy and other interests of patients and doctors. That you can count on that being um, near the top of the legislature's agenda. Another thing I think will be super important is the cost of living here in Denver. Uh, we're now the most expensive non-coastal city in the U.S., and I think that we're likely to see prices and housing in specific uh, keep going up, and so that's going to be a priority for the legislature for sure. Uh, there's a few proposals on the table, I think some better than others. Um, there's been discussion about lifting a ban on rent control in Colorado. And then some other people have taken a different angle and said that maybe instead of trying rent control, we can focus more on building new affordable housing units. Um, I think that's a really good idea, and I could definitely see the legislature focusing on that. Another priority that we're not focused on right now as much, just because it's the winter, um, is going to be water shortages and saving the Colorado River. It's not fire season now, but it will be. And we're going to have to work not only with um, people within the state, but between other states to try to protect all of the West through the Colorado River. And I think that that is also going to be a really big deal in this next session. Dave, what about crime? Um, it's an issue that voters say that they care about, and rising crime is something that uh, is, is affecting the state. Do you think the legislature will do anything meaningful on that front? Sure, they'll, they'll crack down on law-abiding gun owners rather than crack down on violent criminals. That, that's been their uh, approach for about the last uh, five years. Um, another thing they're going to want to do is a major attack on the, the taxpayer's bill of rights. These politicians who are always congratulating themselves about how much they love democracy they sure don't like the idea of democratic voting on taxes or spending. So our Colorado ruling class thinks a lot like bad old King Charles I of England in the 1600s. They think all the property in their jurisdiction belongs to them, and it's up to them to decide how much of it they will let the people uh, keep. For them, choice is uh, something that they are all 
think is swell uh, for pregnant women, but not for working people. Eric, if you could give a recommendation to the legislature, legislature, what would it be? I think the whole affordability issue with respect to housing, but even more broadly, Democrats harped and harped on that during the election year of 2022. Let's see if they stay with that, not only with it as a political message, but with it as a governing and substantive agenda um, now that the election has passed and, and we're in 2023, and let's see what that looks like and whether they put uh, action behind the words. Uh, government in Colorado has gotten larger and larger, particularly under Democratic uh, rule here. And, you know, at some point you need to put the brakes on it. It's not always going to be boom times here, particularly on the growth of the uh, employee count and all the rest. And then there is that hidden issue that no one wants to talk about because it makes eyes glaze over, but it is the burden of Colorado Para, the Public Employees Retirement Association, that is further underwater today because of a down stock market last year. It's further underwater today than it was 12 months ago. I'm not terribly optimistic that a Democratic legislature wants to meaningfully tackle that, uh, given union pressures, whatever. But if they were far-sighted, uh, they would. And then, of course, there's the whole education piece. Our school finance uh, funding formula needs a major overhaul. That has been years in the making. It's tough stuff, but uh, maybe this legislature will rise to the occasion. U.S. Congressman Kevin McCarthy had a tough week trying to secure enough votes to become the next Speaker of the House. A group of 20 representatives, including Colorado's own Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, demanded concessions. When they failed to get what they wanted, the group voted for other GOP members. Meanwhile, Democrats united behind New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries. Is the GOP drama accomplishing anything, Kalina? Well, I think whether or not it's accomplished anything honestly remains to be seen. Um, I can understand right now why people are very dissatisfied with McCarthy after the dismal showing in the midterms. And I think that this is really a test for his leadership, but also for the Republican agenda going forward. I think if we see that um, the small number of House Republicans are able to draw these concessions out of McCarthy, I think that'll show them that they can hold the agenda hostage in order to get future concessions. And I think that split and just the fact that their majority is so narrow, I think will really limit what the Republicans are able to achieve in the House. And I also think it's making Democrats uh, look a little bit harder at Boebert. She barely won her seat. And I think that another primary challenge could be successful, especially if it proves that these antics aren't really popular with voters. The final thing that I just wanted to spotlight is that many of these demands being made by the Freedom Caucus, those who aren't voting for McCarthy, are undesirable, but there's actually some good stuff in there, namely congressional term limits. So I don't want it all to just be glossed over as just drama. So the Freedom Caucus, I think, is right to point that we have a serious debt problem in this country, uh, $32, 31000000000000 trillion of debt, and some of their concessions have something to do with eliminating some of that debt. Do you think they're going to succeed in doing anything at all? Well, they've already succeeded in getting some concessions out of McCarthy, such as uh, 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 making the system a little bit more open. You know, over American history, there have been 14 U.S. House Speaker elections that went to multiple ballots. Thirteen of those happened before the Civil War. The last one happened in, in 1923, and that took nine ballots. And in the, the most recent ones before that, it took 44 ballots, 113 ballots, and 63 ballots. You know, over the last decade, the power in the House has been far too centralized. 
in the office of the Speaker, and that worsened a, a bad trend that was already going on the previous decade before. So I am hopeful that this current contest test will uh, result in some samizdat and a little bit more openness uh, in the House, like more like in the 70s or 80s. And on the Democratic side, you've got those people who keep on voting for Hakeem Jeffries. That's nothing to be proud about. You know, St. Peter denied Jesus Christ three times, but it all happened in basically one session on the morning of Good Friday. Hakeem Jeffries has denied elections 12 times in his career. And if you care about democracy and election integrity, uh, and then you vote for Hakeem Jeffries, uh, it's hard to take you seriously. Eric, uh, do you think anything good will come out of this most recent dr uh, drama? Well, who knows how it ultimately ends. The only word I can come up with it is spectacle in terms of good things coming out of it. Uh, C-SPAN viewership has been way up over the last couple days, so I guess that is something good. Uh, I think it really points whoever takes the chair as speaker, whether it's Kevin McCarthy or some other compromise candidate, uh, ultimately, uh, this is an ungovernable caucus at the moment. It is a function of how badly, as uh, uh, Kalina pointed out, how badly the Republicans performed in the last election. If they had a big majority like they expected, the Boberts and, and others of the world wouldn't have that much impact. This is a function of that they have a four-vote majority. They can only lose four votes. If they can't agree on the speakership, how are they ever going to come to an agreement on the substantive stuff that awaits them? Whoever becomes the next speaker, I predict, will have a tenure in that job that makes Liz Truss, the former prime minister of Britain, uh, look like a long-termer. I think, and we'll see how this plays out, um, Ken Buck has an interesting role to play here. He started making some noises yesterday that McCarthy could not count on his vote forever, that there was an expiration point on it, that if McCarthy couldn't put this together, that even people like Ken Buck, an honorable but very conservative legislator, the notion of them as centrist Republicans tells you where the epicenter of that party is these days. Danny, uh, one person that was in uh, the, the, the 20, of course, was Lauren Boebert, and she had promised, it seemed, to, to change the, the way she does business, given her very close vote. Does this help her or hurt her, this last week's spectacle? Well, it's frankly not even helping her on Fox. Uh, Sean Hannity gave her a grilling. I wasn't watching Fox. I watched it on another channel, but um, gave her a grilling. And so, no, I, I have no reason to think she has learned any lesson. And I'm sure Adam Frisch is just, is just um, um, rubbing his hands together and waiting for the next try. I have to respond to something that David said. Um, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries has never stormed the Capitol. I really don't know what you're talking about regarding him denying elections. He said but a dozen times that Trump didn't win in 2016. But, that's fine, but did he ever try lie. to... Did he storm the Capitol? Did he ever encourage anyone to storm the Capitol and try to disrupt an orderly transfer of power? Never. Absolutely never. So one thing to question 2016, it's quite another to encourage an insurrection. Furthermore, regarding the narrow the narrow majority that the Republicans will have once this, uh, the House of Representatives are sworn in and seated. Former Speaker Nancy Pelosi dealt with that same small majority, a four-person majority, and look what she was able to accomplish. There's a difference, and the difference is there are some people who believe in government and believe that government can be helpful and believe in process, and there are others who just want to blow it up. And that's what we're faced with. 
And now it's time for our favorite part of the show, which is Disgrace of the Week and an opportunity to say something nice. Your disgrace, Dave. Well, if you're complaining about the new 10 cent per plastic bag and 10 cent per paper bag that's now gone into effect uh, statewide, you ought to stop complaining because this year is the good old days. Next year, plastic bags are going to be banned entirely. Um, which will make people use cloth grocery bags, which are usually filled with huge amounts of germs. And cloth bags also have a much, much worse environmental impact over their life cycle when you take into account factors like the amount of water that's needed uh, for cotton cultivation. But we are ruled in Colorado by anti-science fundamentalists who think plastic is immoral and they want to impose their morality on everyone else. Eric, your disgrace. Colorado Department of Transportation, CDOT. Uh, we were on I-70 through Clear Creek Canyon on uh, the day after Christmas. They had these two brand shiny new express lanes, both closed. Traffic is completely jammed up. The express lanes that we have all paid for are closed. Then when they were called out about it on Twitter, they ducked and covered and said that they're only allowed to have those express lanes open on holidays and weekends. First of all, that's nonsense because they are many times open during the middle of the week when they're not needed. And secondly, it was a holiday. So at least let's tell it straight, CDOT, and let's uh, use a little better judgment on when to open uh, the additional capacity. Danny, your thoughts? Krista, my disgrace are the lunatic COVID anti-vaxxers who circled uh, Buffalo Bill's DeMar Hamlin like demented vultures with their, their, their lies, with their conspiracy theories that a COVID vaccine um, may have caused, no, no, definitely caused him to collapse on the field um, against the Cincinnati Bengals. That was just absolutely despicable. Thank goodness uh, Damar Hamlin uh, seems to be responding and is recovering. But there are, there's just no, there's no, there's no bottom for some people. Kalina, your disgrace of the week. Uh, my disgrace is a recent study out of Stanford that shows that uh, over a lifetime of earnings due to COVID learning loss, individuals are going to lose out on about 70K. I think that's really significant. But the real disgrace, I think, is that we're not looking at why kids were kept out of schools for so long, especially in Denver. And I think that there needs to be some more accountability there. Now let's say something nice. Dave. <laughs> Last Tuesday, the two most famous teenagers in the world both turned 20. They were born on January 3rd, 2003. And right now they don't like each other very much, but they really have a lot in common. There are millions of people who say that one or the other is a hero, and there are also many millions others who say that one or both are nuttier than a fruitcake. <laughs> but, one of the, but both of them always stand up for their convictions in the face of adversity. So like in a romantic comedy, this star-crossed couple just might have wedding bells in their future. Best wishes to Greta Thunberg and Kyle Rittenhouse. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, Eric, your thoughts? I love that little factoid. David told me that off the air a few weeks ago. I love the factoid. As this airs, it is January 6th. It is two years since the the shambles, the insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, hopefully this anniversary reminds us that uh, democracy is not guaranteed and it needs constant nurturing. Uh, and let's keep that in our thoughts. Thank you. Danny. 
The Reproductive Health Equity Act. Now, the law was passed last year to protect abortion access and contraceptive access in Colorado, but it is one of the five events that History Colorado named and its list of top five moments in Colorado history in the making for 2022. So good for the um, Reproductive Health Equity Act, and thank you, History Colorado, for recognizing its historical importance. Kalina. Well, the something nice I'd like to share is that we're seeing a lot of small businesses, especially the ones that were able to survive COVID, really rebounding. And there's also many new restaurants now opening in Denver. Um, I hope that this contributes to a revitalization after COVID, and I hope that people continue to patronize them in the future. Well, that's all the time that we have for tonight. I want to thank our panelists here for their insights and also thank you for watching Colorado Inside Out on PBS Channel 12. Check us out at pbs12.org on our YouTube channel. Also, have yourself a spectacular night.